Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Voice of the Cape. Uh, this is a special interview on Shafiq Morton, not as a presenter of Drive Time, but as a, an author and a researcher, historian. The forthcoming book being From the Spice Islands to Cape Town, The Life and Times of Tuanguru. His name being Abdullah ibn Qadi Abdul Salam, born in 1712, uh, a father figure of Islam in South Africa, as we all know, has been revisited and new findings telling a holistic story of his person and contributions. Written by Shafiq Morton, commissioned by Oqaf South Africa. That launch will be happening at the center for the book. Uh, that's number 162 Queen Victoria Street in Cape Town. Uh, this coming Sunday at 2 p.m. And of course, it's a very exciting project that has brought so much fruits that will certainly enlighten the community about our own history and the importance of maintaining that and preserving the heritage that we have, various themes that come from that that you've written now, Shafiq. Assalamu alaikum to you. Walaikum salam. I find the historian and researcher but uh, quite difficult uh, to bear. I'm just a journalist. <laughs> Well, a journalist means so many different things, doesn't it, these days? Uh, certainly does. Uh, multitasking, multimedia. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've certainly been a fan of this, uh, the whole process behind, you know, the, the book itself on uh, an historical figure who we haven't given as much significance as we should do. Who was Tuanguru and why decide on researching and, and telling perhaps a new version of the story of Tuanguru? The whole project started when Mikhail Collier of Okaf, South Africa, um, said, Shafiq, we'll commission you to do a book and we want to do one on the life of Tuan Guru. Uh, I said yes. Uh, to me, it sounded like a very exciting project. But when it actually started, I then really realized how challenging it was because there was a, a discourse, there was a narrative of Tuan Guru, but it wasn't very much. Mm -hmm. um, it was fragmentary at best. Uh, it only reflected a very short period of his life because he came to Cape Town when he was 68 years of age. So it wasn't reflecting his whole life. Um, there were massive gaps. There were contradictions. Um, the research that I came across uh, was difficult to get by. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I was really up against it. And, and that's how the project started, in a, in a, probably in a state of panic. Mm. Um, but alhamdulillah, at the end of the day, we have managed to produce a book and I'm hoping that we also have managed to produce a completely refreshingly new narrative, a more complete narrative on the life and times of Tuan Guru. So who was he? Who was Tuan Guru? Uh, Tuan meaning master and Guru meaning teacher. Um, yeah, master teacher, grand teacher. Uh -huh. uh, now, now Tuan Guru, to sort of encapsulate exactly who he was, he comes from a family of, of Javanese scholars who originally came from, from Hadramaut, in, in Yemen, uh, Tuan Guru comes from a prophetic lineage. He is, in fact, a, a Sayyid. His family uh, moved from Hadramaut to Amman, from Amman into the Indo-Pak subcontinent, um, to a place called Nasirabad in India, mm -hmm. and then from India into the uh, Far East, or the S Southeast Asia, rather. And one of his... Uh, ancestors Sunan Gunung Jati yes. was one of the founders of Islam in Java and he was also the the Khalif of, of two uh, sultanates in, in, in Java, Chirabon and Banten from which uh, Sheikh Yusuf of Makassar actually comes from. But Tuan Guru hails from this family so it was a family of scholars, family of Sayyids. So the family had a lot of status mm -hmm. when it was on Java and 
when his one forefather, um, Habib Umar Rahmat Al Farouk, mm-hmm. uh, came to a, an island called Ternati in 1646, uh, he was received with, with, with open arms. He, he came there, according to the, the evidence we've got, to perform dawah. From Ternati, he moved on to the island of Tadori in 1656, and Tadori is the island of Tuanguru's birth. So Tuanguru is a, a Javanese uh, person of Javanese Sayyid descent mm. who ended up in the Spice Islands, in the Moluccas. Now, something that is interesting about the Spice Islands, the Spice Islands is a separate group in the Indonesian archipelago, which is over 20,000 islands. The, 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 the Spice Islands have their own culture. They have their own way of looking at the world, which is quite different from Java, Sumatra, or Borneo. Mm-hmm. So it was a separate part of the archipelago. It had its own little empire. Tidore and Ternati were key centers of, of power in the region. And Tidore uh, used to um, have power even as far as Haiti in the Pacific. Oh. In fact, the, the Maoris that went to New Zealand, we believe, actually came from the Moluccas originally. That's a, another story, maybe another book. Yeah. But um, it looks as if the, the, the people from the Spice Islands in particular had quite an effect on what happened later on in uh, the Eastern Pacific as you go around the world into the Pacific. But what was interesting here was that um, the, the people of Tadori, like the people of Indonesia, had a very metaphoric, a very figurative way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. And their creational myths are, are absolutely beautiful. And one of the amazing things, which is the background to Ton Guru, is how they managed to weld their pre-Islamic myths into the Islamic one. For example, in Tadori and in the Moluccas, four has a great significance. And they just transfer the significance of that great four into the four khalifas of Islam, and so it goes on. But Ton Guru, uh, his, his forefather, Habib Umar Rahmat al Farouk, married into the royal family of Tadori. And that is the, the lineage of Ton Guru in the Moluccas. So apart from having a prophetic lineage, he also has a royal lineage, which in fact goes all the way back to Sunan Gunung Jati but also on Tadori. His father was somebody called Qadi Abdusalam, who was not buried on the island of Tuanguru's birth. He was in fact buried a few, about 600 kilometers to the east on the island of Halmahera. Uh, he's buried there and it's believed that he went there for dawah and also because he was a representative of the government of Tadori. Mm-hmm. What was interesting is that the Tadori Sultanate, which is over 900 years old, that the Qadis, the so-called religious judges, also used to serve as ambassadors and royal courtiers. What you've just demonstrated is, of course, something that we didn't know much about. All we knew was that Tuanguru was a prince from Tidori, a small island uh, in eastern Indonesia. That's it. How did you come to know all of this, this more new information about pre, you know, the, the Cape of Guru of Tuanguru? Um, blood, sweat, and tears, I suppose, is the, is the easy answer. Um, I just had to keep on going and keep on asking questions and mm-hmm. keep on researching. 
And it's a very interesting story how I, I started to get hold of what, what the Moluccas was about. I was more or less at a dead end because there isn't much research in English yes. about uh, Moluku or the Moluccas where Tanguru comes from because nobody's really paid much attention to that part of the world. There's a well-known second-hand bookshop that I frequent quite regularly and something told me that that day mm. I had to go to that bookshop. <laughs> I went there yeah. and on a table was the library of an ex-historian at UCT who used to study um, Southeast Asia. And there were two or three books dealing with the Mulukas, and there was one in particular by um, Professor Leonard Andaya, where he actually talks about uh, Tidori. One of the few references there are in English which talks about Tidori, and he gives the full historical background to the Mulukas. Mm. So that, that helped me a lot. Then also in September um, last year, we had uh, the blessings of the visit of the Sultan of Tadori and from a man called Secretaris Muhammad Amin Farooq, mm. a direct descendant of Tuan Guru via Shan, one of Tuan Guru's sons. And uh, you were there, in fact. Yes. Remember, and we interviewed him at Tuan, uh, Yusuf's, uh, not Tuan, uh, Tuan Guru's Karamat at uh, Tanabaro. And he also gave me some very, very useful insights and titbits, and of course, he also reinforced um, the lineage that we were also researching at the same time. So I had an on-the-ground perspective from him. I had the, the academic works of Leonard Andaya and one or two other academics talking about the, the uh, Tidori from an Indonesian perspective as opposed from a colonial perspective. And then, of course, I, I had a lot of help from the Rakip family, whose uh, um, father, Haji Nur Irfan Rakib, had done a tremendous amount of background research to Tuan Guru. So it was a question of putting all these pieces together and hopefully at the end of the day having something that represents a more perfect jigsaw puzzle than the current one. Mm -hmm. but, but as I went on, it, was, it became quite easy to fill in the dots because you could see the picture that was emerging in terms of what the culture was like in Tadori. And the similarities of their culture to current Cape Muslim culture, our DNA, the way that we behave. Um, I'll just give you an anecdotal example. The Slamatan mm -hmm. is just basically the feast that we have after the, the Khadat or at the wedding. The, the customer feeding people is a Cape Town custom. Uh, there was also uh, the custom um, that we are very reserved and that we, when there is a, a, a time of conflict, we'd rather have a meeting and then not talk about the conflict. <laughs> this is something that used to drive the uh, yeah. colonial uh, researchers mad in Tadori. They said, this, you know, the Tadorians or the Moluccans would talk about everything except the problem at hand, which is what we like in Cape Town. Then also what also came through strongly is the respect they had for the elderly, for, for older people. Seen in Cape Town, we've got the words titi, puta, etc., they had the same respect for, for their elderly uh, in, in, in Tudori as well. So all these strands started to make sense. Um, and, and even other traditions that come from Java to Tudori, to, 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 to Cape Town, uh, the Mushaf, putting a, a holy text on a pillow, yes. that comes from one of the Wali Songo, one of the, the founding states of Indonesia used to do it, and they used to call him Kalak Bantal. Uh, the man used to put the mushaf on the pillow. And here it is. It's a, it's a custom in Cape Town. We still do it. 
but that comes directly from the Wali Songo, the founding saints of Java. It came all the way to Dodori and then from Dodori all the way to Cape Town. So this is just an example. Um, the way that we do, do the molut, the decorations for the molut. I mean, I can just go on and on. There's so many cultural parallels between Indonesia and between South Africa of, of that time that it's, it's, it's quite, quite astounding, actually. Yeah, that is really, um, you know, astonishing to think about all of that information that was, you know, looked at as well. But now we also know a lot about Tuanguru's contribution within the Muslim community itself. There's about maybe three things that we know. He was the, he had the first Jumu'ah in public. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that uh, he had many miracles. That's why we call, you know, the Karamat, Kramats, because of the miracles. And that he had a very important madrasa in Cape Town. Are those the three most essential contributions of Tuanguru or are there more? Oh, there's much more. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've been saying that Tuanguru should be granted the freedom of the city. Mm -hmm. And that is a specific message to the DA who have no respect for our history. Okay, okay. end of my political rant. Yeah. But um, the Tuan Guru did something uh, to the city of Cape Town, which is completely unique and has been completely ignored and overlooked. This madrasa that he established in 1793, uh, when it started, it already had more than 200 uh, uh, pupils in it, mm -hmm. students in it, learners in it. But it goes deeper than that. The slave community at that time, they had no schools. There were no universities. Mm -hmm. They had no education, full stop. So the madrasa became the school. It became the place of learning. But more significantly, it was a place of learning that did not discriminate. Any children of any slave or any slave was quite welcome to come to the madrasa of Tuan Guru, irrespective of their faith and irrespective of their color or their creed. Now remember as well that uh, at the turn of the 18th century, the slaves came from Madagascar. They came from Sri Lanka. They came from the Coromandel, mm -hmm. from, from the Bengali coastlines, from the Malabar coastlines. They came from different parts of Africa, from Mozambique. They came from uh, other parts of the world as well. Um, I can't even remember all of them, even from Malaysia. They also came from the community also comprised of Europeans. We forget that of the early Khoi. Mm -hmm. So it was completely cosmopolitan. And you'll find that in Tuan Guru's, uh, in, in, if you look at the, the history of the Madaris, you'll find that in the 1800s, there are, are Europeans uh, as teachers in these Madaris. Yes. They became Muslim. So his school was a rainbow nation before it was even dreamt of. It was the first non-racial exercise in education in Southern Africa. And the huge irony is Tuan Guru achieved it at the height of colonialism. Mm -hmm. But what it did more than that, it uh, created a new community. It created the Cape Muslim community, which to this very day, as I say, it's variegated. It's got as many veins in it as a leaf has. And if you go to any Jumaa, and you look into the faces of the people, you see the face of every single nation on earth. That's what Tuan Guru's first uh, madrasa would have looked like. Because we were never Malay. We were Muslim under the umbrella of what Tuan Guru created. Yes. So what he did was he created a community from the diaspora, from the anxiety, from the exile, and from the pain of the slave community who really did suffer. I mean, it's difficult to explain how much they yeah. suffered. And he created all of this. So he, in fact, was the creator 
of the community that we live in today. So you're saying that we can't just because if you're Cape Malay, you can claim Tuangro as your own, but large, rather the larger Muslim community and perhaps South Africa as a whole should claim Tuangro as their own. Tuangro belongs to everybody. Mm-hmm. And I mean, our community is so diverse. The other day I heard that our community has got Ethiopian roots. Yes, indeed. Uh, I also heard of people from Afghanistan. So, I mean, and, and this is going back generations. It's not just recently. So we have to bear all of this in mind. And I think Tuan Guru, he belongs to everybody because he was here for everybody mm. in terms of the first madrasa that he created. Then, of course, he, the first mosque. Yes. Um, there's lots of stories around that. The other thing that he did was uh, was, the, was the tradition of Quran. Mm-hmm. He wrote um, the Quran from memory. In fact, I believe there were five copies that he wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raja of Tambura wrote a, a co- copy of the Quran before he did, mm-hmm. but the Raja of Tambura never mixed in in the larger community, and his Quran was taken back to to Batavia and then to Amsterdam. So it's it was it's not in South Africa. Yes. Um, so he created the the Khif's tradition at the Cape which has endured to this very day. And we have a very strong Hifz tradition. And I believe that Tuan Guru was in fact uh, the originator of that particular tradition. Yeah. The whole um, debate around why he was brought here and when he actually came, how many years he spent in Robben Island, it's commonly thought of that he was sent to Robben Island for 13 whole years. Is that true? Have, have you no. found new information about yeah, that? New information. Um, in fact, his coming here is shrouded in a bit of mystery. Uh, the research that we've done so far reveals that um, the, the Dutch broke up the Tadori's in political influence because the British, um, by the end of the 18th century, were making forays into the Philippines. They were coming closer and closer to the Spice Islands. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is the English were not looking for, for cloves. The English were more interested uh, in the tea of India. Okay. Um, that's one of history's interesting little little footnotes. But the, the English were, were sort of encroaching more and more in, in, into Indonesian waters, and the Dutch were feeling very threatened by this. And what happened was that the, uh, the Sultan of Tidori sent an envoy to an English um, businessman, Thomas Forrest, who had created um, a depot or a warehouse at a place called Balambangan mm-hmm. near the Philippines. And Forrest claims that he just wanted the, uh, the people from Tidori, you know, from the Tidorian Empire, to give him water and food. He just wanted supplies. That's what he claims. The Dutch thought otherwise, and they saw uh, the royal family of Tidori as a political threat. So they exiled not just Tuanguru and uh, the, 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 the people that came to the Cape. They exiled the Sultan of Tidori, the Sultan of Tenarte, and many members of the royal family to Batavia in 1779-1780. But Tuan Guru was sent here in 1780, um, I think because it, the Dutch just felt that this family was going to be a big threat down the line, yes. which proved to be the case with uh, the son of the Sultan of Tidori, uh, Nuku, who became the Salahuddin. Of, of the Moluccas, that's another story, yeah. because he fought the Dutch and he, he conquered, he got Ternate into Dore back into Indonesian hands. But um, so John Guru was, was sent to Batavia and he spent a few months in Batavia, then he was sent to the Cape. He arrives here in 1780. He spends less than 24 hours in Cape Town because his papers haven't arrived. 
the other ship is still 12 days in the ocean. It hasn't arrived here yet. So the, the bureaucrats at the VOC don't know what to do with these, these four guys that have arrived here. So the easier thing was just to ship them off to Robben Island. Yes. He stays on Robben Island for about a year. And now the British are on their way to invade the Cape uh, in about 1781. In the letter that we discovered at the house of the, the late Aisha Abdurraouf, may Allah be pleased with her, she passed away recently, mm. um, we found a letter that was translated by Professor Michael Luffin at, uh, um, in Australia that this particular letter is a letter, we, we don't know why it was never sent, in which Tuan Guru is writing home and he passes greetings on his family. Then astoundingly, he says that the British took them in separate ships, all the exiles, to Saldana Bay, where governor, um, whether the governor of the Cape at the time had said the Dutch must hide their fleet in the lagoon there in Saldana Bay and just sit still. Hmm. Of course, the British got to hear, you know, where the fleet was. And when the British arrived, Tuan Guru says that uh, the Dutch had no appetite for warfare. They fled and the British sank the ships and took whatever ships they could away with them. What happened was the four people that came with Tuanguru, it was, uh, they call him Kali or Kali, which is just the Moluccan word for Kadi, Abdurraouf, who was higher in rank than Tuanguru. There was Nurul Iman, who was a secretary or secretaress, and there was Badruddin, who was a scribe, and there was Tuanguru. Nurul Iman and Kali Abdurraouf got into a rowing boat with um, some other princes from Ternati, and they rowed up to the British ship and asked to be taken aboard. They were taken aboard the British ship and they landed in Madras. Now, Ton Guru records this in his letter. Okay. And this is something that has never been known to us before. Because in our ships, Ton Guru and who's ever left of the exiles, because a lot escaped in, in, in the heat of the battle, um, he had to walk back to Cape Town. It took them 15 days to walk back to Cape Town in the middle of winter. So he's on the island. So he, he's, in, he's in Cape Town from 1781. In 1786, um, uh, the Sebastian Rotman and Surabrata go on their famous rampages in which they kill a lot of people. Now, to put that into context, this is not just people going around uh, and killing people for the sake of killing people. Surabrata, for example, was a, a, a former convict. He'd served his time. And they'd made him into a local constable. But he went to the governor of the Cape and he said, please, can I go home? I've served my time. Mm -hmm. And the Dutch being as cruel as they were said, no, you stay here. He got so angry that he went on a rampage. And in the book, I say that this, this wasn't directed at other people. He did this because he wanted to be killed. Yeah. Um, it was like a suicide mission in a sense, mm. which he was uh, by the authorities in a very cruel fashion because they um, – cut his hand off and beat him in his face while he was dying. Uh, that was how the Dutch used to behave in those days. Yeah, well, that, that's really important because um, also the role of Tuanguru as a spiritual healer, mm -hmm. as a murshid, as they call it in Tasawf, the, the spiritual guide for people amidst all of this punishment and torture, which was, you know, unimag unimaginable, right? Now, some yes. of the punishments was, yeah. I mean, if you can desc describe some of those punishments and the role that Tuanguru played, you know, amidst all of that. Well, I mean, the, the, the convict slaves that killed uh, the family of Sebastian Rotman in Somerset West, I think, 
There were six or seven of them. They were they were carrying azimuts, but that's I'll, I'll get to that. But when they were caught, they were hung alive on crosses, and their skin was torn from them with hot tongs while they were still alive. Uh, that's how friendly the Dutch were to to that's how to punish people. But the interesting thing was that these slaves and well, runaway slaves and convicts were carrying uh, azimuts. Now, these Azimuts were traced back to another character called Paiskapi, also called Nurul Iman, mm-hmm. who originally also came from Chirubon, also from the royal family. Uh, uh, his story is another interesting one. And the authorities took uh, Paiskapi into the castle and they actually interrogated him. And there's a record of his interrogation where he denies absolutely everything. He's incredibly vague. Okay. But he, the authorities couldn't pin anything on him. But they realized that the Something is going on here. They were worried. They were paranoid. So what they did was they issued a collective punishment. So all the top exiles were all sent back onto Robben Island um, in 1786. And Tuan Guru only gets back to the mainland on 1791, and Pai Skype comes back in 1793. Now, all through this time, Tuan Guru is seeing the suffering in Cape Town. He's seeing the suffering of people on the island. And that's when I think he began to realize he had a role to play here. And you are correct. One of the greatest roles that people like him, like him, like Pei Skype himself, Said Abdul Malik Bitawi, who's buried in, in, in uh, St. Cyprian's, yeah. who was with Tuan Guru, uh, who, who helped Tuan Guru, and all these early characters, one of their main roles, they had to comfort the people. I mean, the slave population was absolutely traumatized the way that they were being treated, taken away from the furthest corners of Africa, taken away from parts of Indonesia. So part of the job that Ton Guru see that he had to do, he had to comfort these people and he had to bolster their faith. And what is so interesting about all the early sheikhs and imams of the Western Cape, who were all ulama, they were, because they came from the royal families, they were the teachers of the sultans. Never did they worry about the length of our beards or the length of our trousers. They worried more about the faith that was in people's hearts. And I think this is something that we have to really learn from. And this is something how Medina grew, the Nabi Muhammad, he entered people's hearts first. It was faith first, and then it was the rituals afterwards. And that's how Cape Town Islam grew. In terms of the Islam that Tuan Guru had brought, the discourse, um, you know, there were obviously the, the Shafi influence within Indonesia coming, you know, from the Wali Songo, as well as in, in the various other parts of, you know, Islamic sciences in terms of the beliefs, uh, and then also the spiritual practices in, in terms of Sufism, Tasawuf. Uh, and added to that, there were the various miracles that were recorded of the great saints, including Tuan Guru. Tell us about Tuan Guru's Islam as a discourse. Now, Tuan Guru says many times, he's Tidori by birth. Mm-hmm. Um, he played down his princely uh, origins, his princely lineage, mm-hmm. Tidori of birth, um, Shafi by, by, by practice, Ash'ari by doctrine. He says it time and time again, mm-hmm. which is classical Shafi uh, expression. He was uh, a master of Tasawuf. He belonged to the Shatariya Tariqa, mm-hmm. which was a Tariqa of the royal families in Chirubon and Tadori. Now, we have to understand that the, his origins are Ba'alawi, but the Ba'alawi have many branches. Yeah. And Shatariya was one of them. What is interesting about uh, Tuan Guru is that um, 
He, in his uh, Marifa, which is a famous book that he wrote by memory, by hand, 613 pages in Arabic, Malayu, and I think Jawi, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. that in that book you will find the litanies of uh, Imam Shadali, the famous Egyptian uh, sheikh who's influenced every single tariqa. He's got uh, um, Hezbul Wiqaya of Ibn al-Arabi. He's got uh, Dua Asafi of uh, Asha Abdul Qadir Jalani. So you can see all the influences, Qadiriya, yes. Shadaliya, um, all morphing into the, the Shatariya identity, as it were. What is interesting about Tanguru is like Sheikh Yusuf. Mm -hmm. He's actually comes from a background of Ibn Arabi. Now, what is interesting is that Ba'alawi are often, more often than not, it's Imam Ghazali is, is the Ikhya that everybody refers to. Although some of them um, like the works of Ibn al-Arabi. Now, what is interesting is that I found no evidence to date of uh, Tuan Guru expressing <clears throat> the thought of Ibn Arabi. But I think it was because um, the job that he had at the Cape was a very basic one. Yeah, the job that Tuan Guru had at hand was, was more to inculcate faith rather than to talk about the esoteric, theory, esoteric theories of Imam al-Ghazali or Ibn al-Arabi. Um, his uh, um, sort of job was more at a basic level, I could say. Give, give people the faith, give them the works and the litanies that will bolster their courage, that will create a good character in them, and then we can move ahead from there. And the spiritual realities, at least when it came to pass and when the necessity was there for him to display this miraculous um, you know, abilities that he was afforded through his learning and his connection with the various spiritual paths. There were many stories about that. Yeah, what there, do we know? There are some stories, yeah. not as many as you would think, actually. Okay. Um, the, I do think that the family is keeping a lot of these stories. I, I have written about as many as of, as of them as I can in the book, which deals also with his descendants, which mm -hmm. is also very interesting. The most famous story is when he went to Van Riebeek Square, and there was this uh, very arrogant uh, European uh, greengrocer who went to Anguru, asked him what he was selling, and the man said, we really stones. So to Anguru, like, tapped the stones with his stick or something, and when the greengrocer later opened his bags, they were actually stones. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people say, yeah, but ah, that couldn't have happened. My answer to people who question that particular karamat is the fact that there's, there's a moral to the story, Then the moral to the story is that for the community, Tuan Guru had shown an arrogant European that he could not be dominated by that man. That would have been a morale booster for the community, whether the potatoes were stones or not. And I think we have to remember that, that fact. Another of, of his karamats is the fact that they say when he used to make the Adhan at the Owl Mosque, it could be heard in Simonstown over 40 kilometers away. Yeah, the, w one of the greatest miracles as well was the people he left behind and the relationships he formed. Oh, um, yes, yes. In fact, I would agree with that. Um, interestingly, uh, it wasn't quite the way he wanted to be because in one, one of the last letters that he writes, he calls for um, Abu Qasim and Shan, his two sons, to come to Cape Town because I think Tuan Guru is predicting the khilaf that's going to take place after his death. He knew the community. Mm -hmm. And I think the community wasn't quite ready for the leadership that was going to be foisted upon it. And this is no disrespect to the people who, who very bravely took over the reins of leadership. I think uh, he realized that there was, there was still a great need for, for education. Mm -hmm. 
But if you look at um, uh, Imam Ahmad of, of, of Ternati, or sorry, Ahmad van Bengalen, rather, yes. who, became one of his, who became the Qadi of Cape Town, because Tonguru was clever. He wanted uh, um, Imam Ahmad to be the Qadi and then to, there to be Imams underneath him. And then you had your, your Khatib. Uh, and then you had your Mu'adhin. The Khatib used to assist the Imam and the, 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 obviously the Mu'adhin would, would call people to prayer, your Bilal, as they used to say. Um, so he, he created this whole hierarchy within the community, which worked um, until the beginning of the 20th century, in a sense, uh, in terms of, of, of a structure of how the mosque must, must run, basically. Well, I think that was a good overview, although not uh, exhaustive, of the book. That we can, we can carry on forever. We can carry on forever. Uh, but indeed, the, the book covers a, a lot more. And if you can just give an overview of what exactly is in the book ahead of the book launch on Sunday. Well, the book is about the life and times of Tuan Guru. Uh, when I was in the early stages of the book, I, I consulted with a number of people because I was really wrestling with how was I going to tell the story, yes. especially with the fragments. And uh, Jackie Lewis, as everybody knows her, actually said, Shafiq, you know, the big, best advice she's ever been given as a historian, what was it like at the time in which the people lived? And then the penny dropped. And then I realized we've never actually looked at what it was like when Guru was alive. Yes. So what I've done is hopefully is created a picture of what it was like to be uh, a person from uh, a non-colonial viewpoint at the time of Guru, And inshallah, other researchers coming after me, hopefully I've opened some some doors for them. Yeah, exactly. That, that's also, this is part of this new uh, movement, or I don't know how new it is, but this decolonization movement that people want to look at things through the lens of the people themselves, give back the narrative to uh, people who you know were, were there before uh, the colonial historians had written their works, of course. Uh, and there's been many people along the way, of course, um, the, the late Dr. Ahmed Davids, who you were very close to. Yes, I mean, uh, you know, his work, um, Haji Noor Irfan, they did amazing work in the archives. Frank Bradlow, so many others. Uh, mm -hmm. Ibrahim Ruada has done such amazing work on the community of Somerset West. Too many to mention have uh, beaten the trail for us to understand exactly who we are today. Sheikh Yusuf de Costa. Yes. Uh, Sheikh Siraj Hendricks. So many others, people who spent hours and hours getting Ibrahim uh, Sali. So many people who spent years and years getting full of dust in the archives, digging up our history. And and certainly not only South African historians, but there's there's been interest about Tuanguru and the Cape Muslim community internationally. Absolutely. In in fact, I'm absolutely gobsmacked at the interest that's coming in from overseas. Uh, just for a little humble book about Tuanguru. Why do you think it's important for us to? maintain the heritage of the Cape Muslim community, whether it's literature, whether it's actual um, relics that we have within us. It's a story of the old cliche. If you don't know where you come from, how the hell do you know where you're going? It's as simple as that. And I think that we have a very unique history. I'm told this time and time again by people who visit Cape Town. And I think it's high time that we uh, corralled all our forces um, Put all the history together because it's an amazing story. It really is. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much for the work that you've done, of course. And I think um, I'm speaking for everyone in, in Cape Town and South Africa and across the world. You're a brilliant storyteller. And that was the, the point of the book. It wasn't an academic yeah. 
literature piece, a journal uh, entry, but it was a great story that we can all look at and we can benefit from. So shukran so much, uh, Shafiq Morton, and we wish you all the best, of course, with the launch happening this Sunday at the Center for the Book at 2 p.m. That's in Cape Town, number 162, Queen Victoria. Yeah, all welcome. Everyone is welcome indeed. Uh, and the book will be on sale there. It's, uh, it's, there's no profits for the books. It's, and there's also an audio book that will, will also be issued with the book as well. So if you buy a book, you get an audio book as well. We've decided to go into the audio space for people who, can't, who don't want to read. So you can put the CD uh, maybe not in your car, but at least you can play it somewhere and listen to it. And indeed, there's also photos in the middle of the book, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah we've got uh, one or two pictures of some of the manuscripts and letters, not all of them, but uh, just a, a nice taste of it. Great, absolutely. And uh, from myself, Yasin Kipi, we hope you enjoyed this interview. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam.